Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 56 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Ash Dryden. Hi there. Jim Gay. Hello from sunny Virginia Beach. Eric Davis. Hello. Evan Light. I'm totally confused because we're out of order. Is there an order? Yeah, we had an order. You do Eric and then you do me and then you do whoever else happened to show up. Oh. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I'm doing it wrong. So this week, we're going to be talking about taking a project to learn something. I think Ash said it better, so I'm going to let her explain what we're talking about. Uh, sure. So basically, the concept of taking on a project, specifically so you can learn something new and kind of expand upon what you already know. So learning on the job kind of thing. You mean like speaking coherently when you didn't sleep last night? Exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So I'm I'm curious then right off the bat because uh, I haven't done a whole lot of that. How do you find those projects? You know, it's one thing to think, all right, I'm going to work on this new technology, but then actually finding somebody who needs it and convincing them that you're the person for the job. Uh, well, for me, most of the time, it's people coming to me asking if I know how to do a certain thing or if I've done a certain thing before. And that kind of gives me an idea that, you know, that's something that people are looking for. So maybe something that I should look into more and, and maybe think about, you know, learning. I don't generally go out of my way to find projects that are for something that I have been learning or have been wanting to learn. Yeah, same here. I've, my current project, I'm doing a lot more JavaScript than I normally do. And I've been doing JavaScript off and on for a long time. But I haven't played with Backbone much, for instance. But this project has a little bit. So what I told the client, because oh, he'd asked if I needed to get another contractor to do UI stuff, and what I negotiated with the client is I said, if I find myself beating my head against the wall because there's something I feel like I should know, but I don't, then I just won't bill you for that time. Yeah, the, the, the idea of finding a client that has, uh, has something that I'm not familiar with versus having them find me, it's usually the latter. Yeah, and exactly the same thing. It's they approached you because of something that they know you already know how to do. And then they are also looking for people who can do some other X, Y, and Z things and ask if you can do it. Yeah. And I've also found that in most projects that I pick up there, there's some aspect of it that I haven't done before, but at the same time, a lot of it really isn't outside of the realm of something that I know I can figure out on occasion. There, there are things where it's like, well, gee, I really just don't know what it's going to take to do it. So, for example, yesterday I went to lunch with a, a referral that I got from a friend of mine, and he he went through the list of things that he needed, and I could do everything except for the wire transfers. He want, he needs to be able to do wire transfers for some of his employees, and I, you know, I've never hooked into an API that did that, and so you know, I, I just said, well, here's the kind of information we need, and you know, I'm kind of excited to learn how to do it if it's possible you know, to do through an API call or something. Yeah, for some of that stuff, uh, I think your level of experience and how much they believe you can solve problems quickly has a lot to do with it as well. Because I've seen myself projects where they expect a lot out of me and I will say flat out, well, you know, I've never used Backbone before, but, you know, I've written JavaScript and I know it well, so I'll have to spend some time getting up to speed on it. Uh, whereas I've seen you know, new developers who have no experience with 
you know, barely anything, say, well, I don't really know it. And for, for someone who's experienced in programming in general, I've found that my clients will be okay with you getting up to speed. But then I've seen the junior developers being told, well, learn that on your old time, your own time, you know, go home and watch videos or something like that. But while you're here, you're going to work. Well, but if you, if you have a, you have a decent breadth of experience, then it makes it a lot easier to uh, pick up new skills I found. So, um, what I've seen a backbone, for instance, I found pretty easy to pick up. I was just able to intuit a few things and developed some hypotheses, tested them rapidly and figured out how some things work very quickly. Yeah, having that context to begin with definitely helps. And I think where a lot of clients maybe shy away from taking on contractors or taking on employees that don't know a specific technology that one of their projects is focusing around is that they've been burned in the past by people not being upfront about them, about, hey, I don't know this, but I do have this other context, or I don't know this, but you know, I'll, I'll take the time and learn it on my own time, or I'll charge you less. Or, you know, just as long as they know up front that, hey, I, I don't label myself an expert in this technology, but I am going to learn it. Learn it. So can, can I kind of tackle that real quick? Is it, I don't know what the right word is. Is it unethical or is it wrong? Is it dishonest to say, yes, I can work in that technology if you really don't know anything about it? I think it's dishonest to say that without caveating your degree of experience and that you'll be learning it as you go, yes. I have to agree, and that's the approach that I usually take. I haven't done a lot with X, or I don't know anything about X, you know, but at the same time, I, I usually represent it as, you know, I'm a smart person and I can figure it out, and I've dealt with things that are, you know, similar or likely similar, you know, to give them my, an idea of how much it's going to take me to ramp up on it. But yeah, I usually tell people that I if, if I don't know it, then I'll tell them I just don't know it. I keep trying to figure out if it's... um if the clients who come to us because they've had bad experiences with another contractor, um, if the other contractor was operating from a, just a point of naivete where they thought, yeah, I can actually learn this, and then they just don't, and they perform badly, or if the contractor was just a bad actor, because I've heard... I've heard some people over the years say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing X and I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm learning it as I go. And, you know, how do you get that project or how have they, how did they get that project and how do they make the mess that we end up inheriting? Well, it's kind of, if you look at like the different levels of a skill, the beginner basically knows they don't know anything and they're free to admit that they're a beginner. The intermediate level is kind of where you start getting into Someone might think that they know something, we'll just say Rails, like they might think they know Rails really good, but in practical matters, they only know the beginner and a little bit of intermediate. It's once you get to like the advanced and expert level that you know the thing, but you also know what you don't know. And so you can kind of have that more thing like, okay, yeah, I've used Rails, but I haven't used Rails 4 or something, for instance. And so I think a problem, at least what I see a lot of is, you have some developers who are actually intermediate level developers, but they think they're experts because there's things that they don't know that they don't know. And so yeah, they kind of, I'm sorry. And so I was just saying like they, you know, and they kind of tell the client like, yeah, I've been using Rails for a long time. I know this, but they actually don't really know it as well as they, as they think they do. I'm going to provide a link for it, but this to me sounds exactly like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, I, I want to jump in and just point out that I've also heard people basically say, and I don't know where I don't know where this idea comes from, but 
you know, they, they talk like they can get away with basically, you know, BSing their way through. Yes, I can do everything that you want me to do. And then, you know, on the back end, then they go figure it out and, you know, sell it. It just, I don't know. I have, I have a really hard time representing things other than the way they are. But I'm, I'm interested because I know that some people do get away with it. They, you know, they say, hey, yes, I can do whatever it is. And then they fudge it and they do it. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people get away with the fake it till you make it for a long time until they kind of get backed into a corner and the, you know, other people are starting to realize that they don't know as much as they do. So maybe at the beginning of your career, it helps to do the fake it till you make it. But once you get to a, once you get to a point where an entire project is resting on your shoulders, that's not the time to say that you know something that you don't. <laughs> Well, the way well, I look at it is, I, I, I'd say you shouldn't say you know something when you don't. Again, you really should say, I believe at least, um, you really should say, here's what I do know, here's what I don't know, but I believe I can learn it. Well, here's the one thing that I want to jump in and say is that uh, it depends on if you're just representing yourself. So if you are working with or have worked with people, for example, I've never done Android development, but if I knew my friend was ready and available who does Android all the time and I was ready to work with him, I might go and say, yes, we can do that. I don't know all the technical details, you know, something like that. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily the one who can answer the questions, but if I'm going to subcontract the work, I think it's perfectly fine to say, yes, we can tackle those issues as long as you come back to it with, you know, good response later. Well, you can also say that, you know, you yourself don't know it or don't aren't as skilled as you'd like to be with it, but you have a network or you have associates, you know, depending on if you're subbing out or if you just have people that you can talk to one-on-one about it. But it's, it comes back to honesty. Like, you know, you got to be as upfront as you can and tell the client, like, I might not be the expert level at say Android as I am in Ruby. So it's going to be slow where it's going to take more time, but I can get the resources in given say my experience in iOS, I think I can manage it. And basically, you just got to leave the call up to the client. I mean, you give them as much information as you can and let them make the decision. Totally. And I found, you know, I think this is sort of a good lead in to a tangent to the conversation. But, um, you know, when you're looking for work and you're trying to move into areas where you don't have experience, if, as long as you're focusing on the business value of what it is you're doing, then you can show your client or potential client that that you're not just there to learn some technical thing or to push some new technology into their stack, but um, that you at least have some understanding of that particular technology is important to their bottom line and that you can help them grow by learning that or by working with somebody who knows it and applying it rather than just saying, yes, I can do that and kind of getting mired in technical questions. Um, it can really make you seem like someone who will be helpful in general, not just helpful for this particular technology they're interested in. So I have a related question then. What what about the contract where you take the contract, um, you've kind of sold them on Ruby on Rails and Backbone.js, and then you figure out that Backbone.js, you know, doesn't really fit the problem as well as, say, AngularJS or Ember.js that you just don't know. At that point, again, do you how do you represent that to the client? First, you have to trust yourself that you're actually right about something that you don't really know much about. Fair enough. I think it's interesting going into a project and offering a technology before you know it can be done in that technology. I try to remain as like technology specific agnostic 
within my contracts because things come up. You know, I, I try to apply the technology that works best for the problem, not just what I might be best at or feel most comfortable and what would actually work best for the client. You know, what, what would, um, what would work best for the contractor that comes after me or whoever has to maintain this. So maybe not putting those specifics in the contract is the way to go. Although I'm, I'm going to throw out the, maybe one of the heretical ones, although I think we've said it occasionally on, on this podcast that if they were really, if they were looking for skills that I don't have enough of, and, and I know other people that do, and they absolutely need those skills and I can't substitute my own somehow, I would probably just refer them to someone who actually would know how to do it better. Right. Even though it would hurt a little. Let's be but honest. Sometimes. That builds up a trust with that client though, that you, you, you know, you're honest with me enough that you think that there's somebody else that can do this better, I'm more likely to go to you for business or for referrals, that kind of thing in the future. Sure. It, it, you could say it's just the right thing to do. You could say it's paying it forward, but I, I don't think I've ever had it come back to me, but I've still done it a number of times. I, I want to echo what Ash said about, you know, possibly just leaving those things out of the contract. I, I have a contract right now that specifically says that I'll be giving support for MySQL, you know, development where we're actually using a couple different databases. And it was the type of thing where we negotiated on other aspects of the contract. And I realized that at the end, and it just, it wasn't worth me saying, oh, by the way, you have me specifically supporting MySQL, but not these other things, you know, we're doing Postgres and Mongo and Redis and, and it's just not worth it, you know? So it's kind of the type of thing where we kind of got most of the details hammered out in the contract and then nobody's looking at those aspects of the, the money details. And I, and I think if, if you do find out like, Hey, we're going to use backbone and you get into it, like, actually, this is a much better fit for, uh, just plain old simple JavaScript. Somebody, you know, totally over engineered this thing. I think it's perfectly fine to go back to them and say, yeah, we talked about doing this, but we discovered new things. Well, that's what I do. I basically define like, you know, what the project's using, but then I say like, this can be changed at any time based on, you know, client and developer requirements, changes and all that. So I, I actually pin it down a little bit, but I keep it vague in that, you know, we can change without doing a whole new contract. And I think it's a lot easier to stay vague if they didn't come to you asking for a specific technology or if they don't already have an an existing app with a specific technology. You can just kind of say, you know, this is the problem that we're solving. Uh, you don't have to put this prescription for the problem in, in the contract. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is usually it's, uh, you know, I'm being contracted to build an app that does X, Y, and Z that, you know, solves these problems and does these kinds of things. And don't I don't specify the technology. I just specify, you know, you're going to pay an hourly rate as I work through this or you're going to pay a fixed bid and here are the very specific details of what I'm going to provide and not going to provide, but it, it doesn't break it down into technologies and technology stacks. Well, that's the difference between a staff AUG project too and a, uh, and I guess a sole source contract, especially Greenfield, where in the latter case, you can choose the implementation and in the former case, they probably already have some technologies and you might know some of them, you might not know some of them, in which case you just, you know, you have to learn some of them on the job or you, you couldn't work with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one, one thing that I've kind of run into recently is one lead that I've been chasing for a while just emailed me and said, hey, I'm looking for somebody who can do iOS work for me. And I've recently made some contacts uh, that can help me do iOS stuff 
I don't know if I could subcontract to them, but they can definitely point me in the right direction. And so I'm wondering if I could take the project maybe at a lower rate or something. Have you ever considered doing that to break into a new market or to pick up a new technology? Totally. No. I don't like to lower my rate, especially because it's an experience thing. Um, Most of the value I give to my client is not the technical value. It's the business value and the overall software engineering of, you know, this is how this is going to work with this other part. And uh, I mean, for example, I actually looked at getting into JavaScript, like leaving the Ruby side a little bit and doing JavaScript half the time and maybe even going all the way into JavaScript. And as a side note, I decided it just wasn't the community for me. So I stayed in Ruby, but I was looking into that and I thought like, oh, should I lower my rate? Cause I've, I haven't been doing JavaScript as heavily. And realistically, when it came down to it is they're still asking for some kind of project from you. They're still going to get business value from you. And the kind of clients I go for are the clients that have a business, have profit, and it's basically an accelerator for them. And so whether I write it in Ruby or JavaScript or Perl or Erlang or anything, it doesn't matter to them. It really comes down to, is that the right tool for them? Now, the other argument is it could take, could take me longer to do the JavaScript portion. And that's a fair argument. But, you know, I, I didn't really want to factor my rate into that because it's still, you know, if my rate's lower and the hours are the same, it's still going to kind of screw up my own accounting. And so I just kept my rate the same and basically would tell a client, look, if I run into, say, backbone stuff and I don't know what I'm doing, I'll comp you time. Like I'll go off the clock for a few hours to figure out the specific problem. And then once I figured it out, I would go back on the clock to actually do their work. Well, and I, I think that's I think that's one fair approach. The other thing is, is if they're willing to accept the trade off of your skill level and keep the the rate the same. In other words, if they feel like they're getting that kind of value out of it anyway, then you know, I I think fair is fair. I, I think the other thing that's important about that is once you lower your rates, it's really hard to bring them back up. Um, I always try to keep my clients right around the same uh, rate. Not everybody pays the same rate for various different reasons, but every new client pays at least as much as all the clients that came before them. Um, So I'm providing the same amount of value, whether or not I'm learning on the job, because like what Eric was saying, I I bring a lot of other contexts and skills from other areas that I can apply and and the, the work around it seems to be the same. And a lot of times I'm, some of those hours I actually won't bill for if it's purely like I'm reading a book or, you know, I'm watching videos. I have a hard time trying to justify to myself billing the same rate for technologies that I'm, if let's say I'm trying to break into a new area, I'm using te- primarily technologies that I'm brand new to. Sure, there are a lot of ways that I can add the same value I did before. But if I'm learning that I know I'm not going to be working as efficiently as I would if I was using something that I'm proficient with. So to that extent, it doesn't seem right to me to bill the normal rate. That said, I've never really had a problem. Well, not granted, I I don't guess I haven't really fluctuated my rate much because I really haven't tried to do this all that much. But I've never really had a problem getting my rates back up. It's all what I've been seeing, and this is more of a a segue so or tangent, so we really don't have to explore it if we don't want, um, is I've just seen a lot of people who are offering lower rates than they used to um, from the leads that I've been getting over the past few months yeah. for the same skills too, I might add. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I can see, uh, with that is if I offer somebody a lower rate and it's like for a few weeks or a month or whatever, I mean, you know, that, that's not, that's not a huge problem, but as I become more fit, uh, proficient with that technology, I'm going to want to bring them up to the, the higher rate. 
I was just going to say a lot. Of, a lot of times, people aren't really keen on that. And if you set some kind of sunset where it's like, you know, this this two or three months is kind of me ramping up, and then after that, you have to pay the full rate. Then they'll go find somebody else. Well, that's what I've talked to some clients about doing before. For example, I was doing exactly that with, uh, or I was trying to do exactly that with my apprentice, with Pat, that uh, I build him. I told the client that I would bill him at X rate for uh, Y amount of time, and then after that, his rate would go up to something else. And uh, I really didn't have too many problems with that. Yeah, I guess I just kind of operate on the, like, there's some kind of something psychological at work when you tell somebody what your rate is, and then in their head, they equate that with how much you're worth. Um, and I think that for me, not wanting to bring my rate down is lowering the value in their mind that I provide. But you could tell them for what I normally do, this is what I normally charge for this skill because I'm learning it. I might start at this, I would start at this rate and we would agree on a finite period of time and then I would up it to my normal rate. I think you have a really good point there, but you can establish that expectation by saying, this is what I normally bill for my ordinary work. And at the same time, you can just bill your normal rate and then comp them hours on the invoice to kind of balance it down to the low rate. I mean, it could be a difference of the projects because all almost all of my projects are about a year in length. And so we're talking long-term contracts, procurement, you know, a lot of red tape to cut through. And having to do like a rate change or something like that, I know would kind of upset a lot of purchasing departments. Yeah. And in fairness, Erica, that's exactly what I'm doing with my front end work I'm doing right now. So so basically what you're saying is you just add another line item that is, here's your discount, your whatever percentage discount or whatever dollar discount per hour. Yes, actually, I will say I'm taking advice that I think maybe it was Eric or Jeff, one of us, not me, gave on an earlier episode where when we were comping the, the customer time, I specifically tell them I'm comping the customer time and tell them how much. Yeah, that's something I learned from a client who did a, did a lot of subbing under and you basically say, I'm billing you for 100 hours, and in this invoice is 20 hours of comp time while we are researching and thrashing on this other issue. And so you show them up front that you know you would have been charged 120 hours, but you're not. And that's that's exactly how I do it. I learned it from them. I like that. So so is that kind of how you handle things when you get when you get really stuck on something that you don't know? That's how I do it. Yeah, I'll I'll go off the clock for a little bit. You know, 15 minutes, an hour, a couple hours, and. Sometimes I'll even tell the client, like, look, I, I need you to push the like calendar schedule back on this thing. I'm running into problems and I'd like to take it, you know, out of band, look at it on my own time and then come back to you. And that's part of how I do my project management. You know, we always have two or three things going so I can jump to something else for available time while I look at that other issue. And then the other question I have is the time tracking thing. So you go off the clock or you just, you know, essentially adding another line item that is non-billable or something? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the show on time tracking. I track all of my time. I track my time I spend in email. I track my time I spend, you know, doing my daily planning. And so I actually, in my system, I have a, a, an issue where basically this is the task and I log my billable time to that. Well, I also log my non-billable time to it. So I can come back and see that I might have spent 10 hours on this feature, but of that three hours was non-billable. Mm -hmm. And my invoicing software can take take that into account and put all that onto the invoice like it needs to be. How do the rest of you guys handle getting stuck? Most of the time, um, I I already know people who do those specific types of things, so I reach out to them, um, and then you know, in exchange, I buy them you know coffee or I buy them lunch. 
Um, just because, I mean, that's, that's the way that I would have learned otherwise. So um, I kind of look at it as like a temporary mentorship. Uh, a lot of times I'll approach people before I take the project on and say, hey, I'm taking on this project. If I have any questions about this, do you mind if, you know, I send you an email or, you know, if we can um, get together for an hour and, I'll, you know, I'll buy you lunch or, or whatever the case is. That way they're kind of expecting that it might happen. And it also um, kind of works too because I have a lot of people that will end up in a reciprocal relationship where I know something that, you know, they might want to take on for a client that they can then come to me and ask questions. I was going to add that um, I think it also depends on different definitions of stuck because there's, I guess we're always working at certain degrees of efficiency. Sometimes we um, are operating less efficiently solving a particular problem for one reason or another. Maybe we're just bumbling around that particular day or it's a particularly nasty problem. And so my solution varies based on the kinds of stuck. If it's a particularly nasty problem, well, they hired me to solve problems and nasty ones included. So maybe if, if as long as it's something I'm skilled in, then I probably just bill my hours straight. If it's, um, again, if it's something I'm not as skilled in or I feel like I should be, then maybe I comp them some. Oh, and there's one I do sometimes. The, you know, if I spend a couple hours or whatever trying to figure out a difficult problem and find out that it's just user error, like I forgot a semicolon or something really stupid, I'll go back and comp them time that I had on my clock or, you know, running as billable time. For me, um, I am very quick to question the business value of something if I find it difficult to do and not. Not so much because uh, because I'm lazy, but if it is difficult to implement, I want to weigh that option. Is it is it worth it to implement this feature, or is it worth that you know and pay me or whoever else is working on it to implement it, or is there an alternative way to get what you want? And so that's the first thing that I do. If I find something difficult or run into a bug or whatever it may be, I'll take I'll take a, a step back and look and forget about the technical aspects. But I will, you know, go to the person who's in charge of the product and say, hey, do we really need to do this? Do we know that the users want to do this? And sometimes the answer is yes. And then, you know, I, I do similar things to other people just to ask questions and try and reach out to the people who might know. But then I would also do kind of what, what Eric does is kind of stop the clock and go do my research. Yeah, one other Let thing me- I want to add to that is just that um, sometimes the trade-off isn't what it's going to cost or whether or not there's business value but uh, has more to do with velocity. And so it's, you know, you're going back to them and saying, hey, look, I told you this was probably going to take about four to six hours. Looks like it's going to be more like 12 to 18 hours. And so you're going to kick a couple other features off of this sprint or out of this release, and then they can make the call as to whether it's worth it on their timeline to make that change. Now, in in terms of keeping the customer happy, though, what I found in most of those cases is that there's at least one other um, option that I can identify. So at least I can present them with a trade-off that's more than binary of, yes, we implement it, no, we don't. It's we can implement it the way you want it, and it will cost a lot more, take more time. Or we can implement it in this more spectacular fashion, and maybe we can take this really simple approach that allows us to be lazy, but it doesn't cost much, and it gets you most of the way there. Or we can just not do it at all. I really prefer to to give them that trade-off because otherwise, you're, frankly, you're presenting them with a problem. They're saying they want X, and you're essentially saying you can have it, but it'll cost a lot or no. And I find it more productive whenever I can 
to take a step back and say, is there a way I can cheat a little if I can bend the rules and, and try to do this simpler? Yeah. Yep. One, one other approach I've, I've used is I've gone back to him because again, we're talking about things that we usually know somebody who can do it. And I've gone back to a client and said, Hey, look, can we temporarily grant access to this subcontractor of mine who is awesome? And he, if I do it, it's going to take, you know, six hours, but, uh, you know, he's not going to struggle the same way I am. So can, can I bring him in and have him do it in an hour? And then you just, you know, you, you handle the billing, however you handle the billing. I kind of want to bring the conversation back around because we, we've talked about sort of just extending ourselves a little bit. But for example, I have zero experience with Erlang. And if I decided I wanted to learn Erlang, I think the only way I would try to find a project where I could work on that is if I knew I had sufficient uh, runway available. You know, if I'm kind of up against the bottom of my bank account and I need to make sure that, you know, I'm paying my mortgage and my kids can go to the doctor or whatever it may be, that definitely plays into whether or not I would take a project or how I might respond to somebody interested in some technology where I, I don't have experience. Yeah, and I still kind of do that within the project. Like if if the project is all about Erlang and, you know, that's kind of the core of the project and I'm not skilled in it, I I wouldn't take it. But if it's say Rails or Ruby, you know, and it, there might be like an Erlang component that worst case scenario, you could drop the Erlang and go to just a, a Ruby stack. I would probably try to take it and then use that kind of side part to pick up Erlang. Yeah, and it also has to be something I actually want to learn. You know, I don't I don't necessarily want to learn Erlang, so I don't have uh, as much motivation to take a project on that I know will be all in Erlang. How did we get Erlang as the... The technology it's to learn. It's Jim's fault. Blame Jim. <laughs> You're right. I brought it up. One of the questions when we were discussing this that uh, Ash put in was um, continually refactoring as you learn more. And uh, I, I'm a little curious to see what you guys' approach to that is. Just because over the years I've gotten from writing really crappy Rails code to writing some, some you know, less crappy Rails code, uh, there are a few aspects that I'm still solidifying there um, in my style of writing it. But you know, as you learn more, obviously you're going to be able to write better code. Do you go back and refactor things? I definitely do, as long as I'm obviously still on the project and there are still hours available. I always try, if I'm coding hours, I always try to put a little bit of a buffer time in there if it's something I'm learning new. Just because you don't know if something is going to, you know, something looks easy but it's going to take far too long. So if I have those extra hours in there, I definitely go back and kind of, you know, start applying the things that, I may have just learned to something that I just that I wrote, you know, two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Can I push back a little on that? Um, how do you convince the the client that it's worth it to them to have you basically rewrite the same code? I think the same way that you convince a client that refactoring in general is a good idea. I mean, it's you're you're kind of future proofing against technical debt, right? It's something that's not done in the most elegant way or the most um, but if it's not done in, in, in the best way possible, then that's something that somebody else is going to have to deal with in the future. If it's something that's confusing, that's going to cost you more time and frustration in the future. So it's, you know, you, you gain a lot out of refactoring. I come down to educating the client and explaining to them what technical debt is and really that it means that while they have the illusion of making a lot of progress quickly, that what it means longer term is that things are going to slow down or that things will actually still get done quickly, but they will break a lot more often. 
I, I will actually resort to showing them the code. You know, if it's non-technical people, I will show them well-factored code and the code that I want to change. And I'll explain to them, look, it's difficult. Here are the pain points for actually, you know, if we make a change to this process, well, it's, you know, I have to break this apart. Whoever has to come back and understand it. And it's much easier if, for example, you look at this code, you know, and code in general for non-technical people can be kind of scary. But if you show them good code versus bad code, they kind of see it. Like there's, there's a gestalt about looking at well-written code that if you have this, you know, massive procedural mess, it's really difficult to understand. And they, they can kind of get them. Like, you know, it's easier to jump to the conclusion about why you might need something like this if they're not uh, technically trained. Did you just say gestalt on this podcast? I did. I did. Bless you. Who says that? <laughs> Jim. Yeah, so, okay. So uh, the other question I have, and, and I, I know that we all ha- kind of have our ways of approaching refactoring, you know, in technologies we're familiar with, but the technologies that we're not so familiar with, as we're learning, we're talking about as we learn, we refactor things. How frequently do you go back and refactor trouble areas versus just refactoring things as you have to go back and work on that code again? I think it depends on how central it is to the, the client, how much I expect them to, to lean on that particular piece of code in the future. And usually that's based on conversations with the client. You know, where, what's the direction of their product? Is this something peripheral or core? Um, if they're going to need to work on it a lot more in the future, then it, it should be cleaner. Right. And is it, is it code that I'm proud of is the other thing that I like to think about? You know, is, is it something that if I was somebody coming onto this project and I read that code, would I groan about it? I, I try to not leave that kind of mess behind. So whether I'm going back and refactoring something that I wrote three weeks ago or if it's something that, you know, I had to... I had to add something else into this block and, oh, I should probably fix the stuff around it. Just really depends on what I'm learning and kind of the quality of code to begin with. I have to agree. The emphasis should be on, on try because some projects or some clients I've worked with, they just don't have enough budget to let me do everything right and get the feature set that they want. And yes, if Uncle Bob were listening, he would say, well, you shouldn't have accepted that project in the first place. And then as I wrote in the the chat, well, you know, I kind of like paying my bills. So sometimes I accept constraints that maybe I don't like very much. Yeah, not every not every project is an ideal project for sure. So the, the other question I have is, as you're learning a technology, uh, how often do you find that you have to educate your client on that technology? Meaning... So, for example, let's say that you make the determination that MongoDB is the way to go for this project for whatever reason. And so you're learning MongoDB as you develop this uh, application. And, you know, how, how much do you have to explain to the client as far as, you know, why you went with MongoDB or how much do they actually need to know about it as you as you learn it? I mean, you got to think about it, though. Like, if that's going to be part of their stack, they're going to need to know the risks associated with it. You know, like a database layer, like what's the chance of losing the data? What's the chance of it going down? What's the scalability? All that stuff. And so they're going to have to know at least how that technology is going to affect their business. I try to educate them at the very high level what it is. And also, like, you know, if they really need support, like, say, there's a problem in MongoDB that's outside of all of their developers' knowledge, can they contact a corporate entity and kind of get paid support, you know, is there a huge community for it? And that's kind of 
depending on how critical it is, that's something I don't take lightly. I try to like bring up big stack changes well in advance of when they're actually needed, just so, you know, the client has time to kind of get used to it and feel comfortable with the technology, maybe even do a prototype or two around it to see, you know, how it's going to play out with their main app before actually putting it in the main code. So Evan just put a link in regarding MongoDB. I just have to ask, is that NSFW? Um, slightly. Okay. I don't think there's any sexual language in it, but there's definitely some um, profanity. Yeah, if it's the one I'm thinking about, it's pretty funny. But yeah, I just want to warn people. If- it involves a certain kind of farming. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with uh, what Eric said. You know, and I mean, on the, on another point, like if it's uh, like say a third party JavaScript library that just does like you know date validations or something like that's such low risk that I don't even tell the client. I just say we're just going to use third party. The code's open source, MIT, whatever, and just use it. I mean, that's kind of as a consultant, you got to weigh a lot of the technical risk and then translate into business risk for them. Yeah. So I'm curious, what uh, everybody here is a freelancer. Um, what are all of you interested in learning? You know, are, are, are any of you actively pursuing a particular technology or process that um, you want to learn about? I'd like to, to do a little bit more closure, and I wouldn't mind picking up an Erlang project. Yeah, I, closure is definitely on my list. Um, Backbone is also on my list. Two things that I haven't had the opportunity or, like, the time to really uh, focus any time on. Yeah, my things are, I really want to learn more deeply just JavaScript, uh, Node.js. The other one that I've been playing with lately that I really want to spend a little bit more time with is iOS development. And for me, a lot of stuff I'm trying to pick up right now is actually business side, like marketing, landing page stuff, doing a little bit of stuff of Redis and basic key values type stores. You mean you have to know business stuff to uh, do business stuff? Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, uh, should I go in order this time, Evan? Eric, what are your picks? <laughs> okay, so my picks, uh, there's three of them. I'm not going to go over a lot of them, but basically, uh, I guess this past week or two, I started changing a lot of my passwords around. Um, just the kind of the password scheme that I had before, I was just kind of tired of it and wanted to get something more secure. So uh, my three picks this week, there's an XKCD that kind of talks about passwords and how you can judge the strength of them. Uh, if you know it, it's the correct horse battery staple one. The next one is a link I found. It's basically you you type your password until you can just kind of make it up. But using, I don't know the algorithm, but it basically figures out how large of a search space the password would be. So if it's a common word, it's obviously going to be you know easy to find. But if it's correct horse battery staple, it's going to take, what is it, 1.2400 trillion trillion sensories to crack given like something that's even faster than what NSA has. So that's a that's a nice little thing to kind of check the algorithms or kind of how you're doing your passwords. They say it's all local. Obviously, you don't type in bank passwords into a website unless it's your bank. So, And then the third thing I came across, it's called the Diceware Passphrase um, system or whatever. Basically, you actually use physical dice and roll them however many times, and it basically will kind of generate a English real-word kind of language password for you. And I got the hint from 1Password and LastPass. They were talking about how to create good master passwords. And this came up right there. It's pretty neat because it's, you know, very, very random and it's supposed to be pretty secure. You know, the more words and the more dice rolls you make, the more secure it will be. So I'll put the links in the show notes. Very, very, very technical stuff. But if you're thinking about doing passwords, I'd 
recommend going through these and kind of seeing how they work. All right. Evan, what are your picks? I guess I'll pick a couple of iOS apps I've been using lately. Um, I've, I've been using the Mailbox app, which is a kind of interesting uh, email replacement. And uh, it has some GTD-like features where you can take an email and say, remind me about this email in a day, a week, a month, a few hours. And then it goes out of your your inbox for that period of time. So it lets you get to an inbox zero, since that's a big deal to a lot of people, pretty easily uh, just by shuffling around things in, in terms of importance. So I've been loving that. It's completely free. It's just that you probably have to wait in line in order to be able to use it, and it's only on iOS. Has it and changed Has it changed the way you use your email, or are you just kind of kicking the can down the road? No, actually, it, it has changed the way I use my email because ordinarily what I would do is I would take um, the important ones and I would put them in my to-do list, and then they would often languish there. And I'm mean, being quite honest that my my to-do list doesn't get to done as often as I would like it to be. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, with Mailbox, when I have something come up later, then I well, I always see that because I check my email fairly compulsively, even if I don't check my to-do list as compulsively. So it's actually been pretty helpful for me. And the other thing I've been using lately is a calendar replacement called Fantastical, which um, really is just a better UI on top of the uh, built-in calendar. Uh, it allows you to very easily browse whole days and then has a much better month view. And that's also fairly cheap and has a nice user interface. Oh, and you can also enter, um, you can also enter appointments semantically. But I don't think it plays with Siri other than you can schedule events through the normal Siri protocol, but you can't do it then that, whatever. I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> or you know. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Are those all your picks? Yeah. I'd also like to pick the shoe, which I'm eating right now while I'm trying to describe Fantastical. The shoe that you're eating? <laughs> is that a well-done steak? Or is your foot in your mouth? Well, it, 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 I think it, it is a leather upper, so Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jim, what are your picks? All right, I'm actually prepared this time. I usually get to the end of the show and think, oh, no, I forgot to get some picks. Um, so I read a blog post this morning titled, uh, How Much Sleep Do We Really Need to Work Productively? And it's great. I've been very interested in tracking my sleep. I used to have a Fitbit um, that would help me track my sleep, uh, and then I lost that, and then I bought a new one, and then I lost that one. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Um, actually, uh, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it. Um, you wear it around your wrist. Anyway, it's supposed to be very good about waking you up at, at the right time. Um, uh, but I've Jawbone. been curious. Jawbone, that's what it is. Um, well, that's the company, isn't it? Yeah, that's the company. Um, uh, they have something. So I'm going to try and check that out. But, uh, I've been jealous of my kids who nap and they have, you know, barely a care in the world. And I would love to work naps back into my day. Um, so I'm, I'm planning on working on that. Um, and then, uh, I just recently, recently purchased and started reading the visual display of quantitative information by Edward Tuft. Um, so far it's a great book. I have a graphic design background and, you know, displaying lots of data is uh, something I'm really interested in. And I'm, hopefully going to be able to pull some ideas from it to, to put into my book as well. But so far, a great book. Those are my picks. Awesome. Ash, what are your picks? 
So I have one that is not at all recent, but I just uh, stumbled across it last week on this, or the, rather this past week on Twitter. Um, so I'm a Vim user. I've been a Vim user for about two years. And somebody posted on Stack Overflow this gigantic list of like their most productive uh, Vim shortcuts that aren't very well known. And it's a huge list and it's gotten uh, over almost 3,000 uh, plus ones on it. So it's really good. The second one is UX Apprentice, which is a site that uh, the folks behind Balsamic just released. And it basically walks you through what UX is, uh, all the different steps, uh, who should be involved, the kinds of things that you do, software that you should, um, software that you might think about using, books you might think of reading. So I thought that was really neat. UX is something I'm trying to learn more about this year. And then the third one is a book called Wool by Hugh Howey. It's a science fiction novel that's kind of written in an interesting way. It's uh, set up as a serial. So there are five or, or eight like short stories in the serial. And um, he released them one by one on Amazon. And it's one of the better science fiction stories I've read in a long time. I really enjoy the fact that a lot of the main characters are women that are written really well. They're written like actual people. And that's when I've like been impatiently waiting for our science fiction book club to pick up because I want to talk to people about it so badly. <laughs> you have a science fiction book club? I should actually show I do. Up one of those one of these days. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, really love, um, I really love science fiction in general. And I wanted to start a book club. And a lot of my friends aren't in Madison where I live. So I kind of invited anybody who wanted to participate. We have a Google group. And then once a month, we meet uh, via Google Hangout and discuss the book. Oh, so this is one I could actually attend. Yeah. Ooh. All right. I'm going to be harassing you a little later. <laughs> That's if there are enough spots in the Hangouts because the Hangouts get crowded, don't they? Uh, that's true. It just depends. I mean, like uh, last night we had, um, we talked about an Arthur C. Clarke book that we just read and we had four people. So sometimes they're really crowded, sometimes not so much. And you get to hang out with Ash. There you go. All right. So my picks, uh, my first pick, I was looking for a, a new game because I got a little bit tired of the games I had on my iPhone, which is really the only thing I play games on anymore. And uh, I found this one. It's called uh, Robo. Robocalypse, I guess is what it's called. And uh, it's it's kind of a an interesting game. It's, you know, you build buildings and then the buildings build units and you, you know, you go and fight. And it's got this story that's supposed to be funny and clever that isn't quite so funny and clever. But, you know, it's nice to build a bunch of robots and then say, go kill that thing over there. So uh, I've been enjoying it. Not so much for the storyline, but just for the fact that I have something on my phone that I can that I can build and play and stuff. So uh yeah, that that's I think that's the only pick I've got. I'm too tired to think of anything else. So anyway, I guess I should actually uh tell you about another podcast that I just started if you're interested in iOS development. Um if you go to iFreaksShow.com. Um now this is not it's not up yet, but it will be up when this by the time this is released. Yeah, go check it out. It should be in iTunes by then, too. And so you can uh, pick up the show and, and start listening to it if you want to hear us talk about programming for iPhone, iPad, that kind of stuff. And with that, I guess we'll wrap it up. Take care. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys next week.